Welcome to Inside White with me, James Starkey. And me, Jonathan Gullis. There are few buildings in the world as iconic as their Houses of Parliament. A UNESCO World Heritage Site, it's over 150 years old and home to the UK Legislature, both the House of Commons and the House of Lords. Around 3,000 people daily work to support the work of the House of Commons, the researchers, the auxiliary staff, the people that keep the place going. It has bars, shops, cafes, restaurants, a gym, a crash, a hair salon, cash points, a post office, a church and prayer facilities, and at least one, I think maybe two, gift shops. So running this iconic institution is a mammoth task, and one made harder by the restoration that's needed to a building that hasn't seen a major refurbishment for over 80 years. Joining us today to discuss this vital topic to keep such a beautiful building that we hold precious in this country is Nigel Evans, MP. Welcome, Nigel. Hi, James and Jonathan. How are you? I'm good. Cheers. Nigel is a familiar face to many in Westminster, having been the MP for Ribble Valley for more than 30 years. Sorry to dump that number on you. No, that's all right. Yeah, there should be the restoration of Nigel Evans, never mind the building. (laughs) Nigel became Deputy Speaker in 2020 and is also the Chairman of the Restoration and Renewal Programme Board. And it's in that role that we speak to Nigel today to understand a bit more about the restoration process going on at the House of Commons. Thanks so much for joining us, Nigel. Pleasure, James. Yeah. We always start, we're going to talk about the restoration process. We always start, though, with just how and why you got into politics. You came in, in I was just looking at the, because you came in in 92. Yeah. So that kind of last bit of the last big length of Tory government. Why did, you know, how long had you aspired to be an MP and how did you get involved? Well, I started, uh, my first uh, seat was in uh, 1987. Uh, when I fought Swansea West, and then uh, that's where I, where my accent comes from. And then uh, 1989, I fought a by-election in Pontypris, uh, clearly didn't win that. And then 1991, um, John Major became, uh, in fact, I've just been talking to John Major at the memorial service uh, to Peter Brook, absolutely uh, um, incredibly won the 92 general election. And when, when he came to power um, <clears throat> prior to the 92 election, he elevated David Waddington, who was the MP for Ribble Valley, to the House of Lords, and therefore that's where the vacancy came from. So I fought that by election too in 1991 yeah. and lost that one because it was the poll tax. You got tangled election. up in the poll tax that by election. Yeah, <clears throat> it's where the poll tax was buried. Yeah, firmly. Uh, and then uh, John, as I said, uh, won in '92. Uh, uh, I came back 12 months later in the general election, and I've been in the seat ever since. So uh, it's a it's a long tumultuous journey. And my one piece of advice to anybody who wants to get into politics is resilience. People will tell you you're too young, you're too old, or you need more experience, or get out and do something else first and all that. Uh, If you are desperate to do it, just get out and do it and never, ever give up. Because if you give up, you'll never get there. And the political cemetery is full of bodies of people who gave up. You know, that's really interesting you should say that, Nigel, because one of the, I think a theme, certainly with the MPs we've had on the podcast, is they do all seem to share one thing in common, Labour, Tory, age-wise, is a, is a determination. I, I didn't realise, I've known Pretty obviously, for years. When she came on, she told us how many selections she fought. It was double figures. And she just kept going. And I thought, I don't know, would I have given up after three or four even, you know? And I think it's interesting that you think, you, your, so your message to people who are aspiring to get into politics is, just absolutely keep going. Yeah, keep get get the resilience going because uh, you'll need that more than you'll need almost anything else. Yeah. Totally. Uh, and uh, as you keep uh, falling down, get up. Nobody will blame you for falling down. They'll blame you if you don't get back up. Mm. 
when um, I got elected in 92, um, I got this little framed message, uh, and I still don't know who it's from. And it just said this. If Christopher Columbus had turned around, nobody would have blamed him. And nobody would have remembered him either. Oh, I like that. And I thought that was just classic, mm-hmm. uh, you know, to receive that. You don't know who sent that to you? I know. I haven't got the faintest idea. That's a brilliant message to... We've got a lot... I think we have a lot of younger listeners from kind of universities who are interested in politics. Yeah. And, yeah, we, men- we mainly speak to kind of journalists and MPs on the pods. And I think and we, I think all of us here would know it's a tough area to get into, Westminster. It's tough, um, but, but if you keep going, you're eventually going to do it. There's a seat there for somebody and everybody uh, if you just keep on going and going and going. Uh, um, but I know lots of people who all of a sudden get a well-paid job yeah. and then get married and then have kids, and then all of a sudden other priorities kick in and politics takes a secondary role. Yeah. Uh, so, but for me, it didn't. Uh, I was just so focused on uh, getting into Westminster um, and then staying at Westminster. And as I say, I've done it since 1992. I was a councillor for six years before then right. in West Glamorgan, and I, I enjoyed that. Uh, but Westminster was where my heart lay. And I guess um, this is a great segue into saying that when I first got elected, going through uh, the door uh, of um, uh, the House of Commons for the first time, uh, I got a real kick out of it. And 31 plus years later, I still get a kick out of it. And to think that I'm chair of the program board now uh, in charge of renewal and restoration of our parliamentary building, which, as you said earlier on, is iconic mm. throughout the world. Um, I can't, got to say, what a what a huge boost that is yeah. uh, to me. I feel really good about uh, being asked to um, chair that board by um, uh, parliament. And, uh, you know, I'm having a fantastic time doing it. I'm seeing bits of Parliament I've never seen before. Mm. Even um, after 30 years, uh, I'd never been downstairs to have a look at the electrics and the uh, steam and the gas and all that, those sorts yeah. of things that keep the place going. I think the sewerage goes back to uh, the 1830s. Uh, and so there's a, there's a lot of renewal that does need to be going on because if that packs in, uh, then I, I think we are in deep trouble. <laughs> be a lot of portaloos around uh, Westminster. And so when you um, came into this role, You'd been around Parliament for a long time. You must have known, you know, it's, it's talked about the place, you know, need, needs kind of modernising or... How were you aware of how much it needed, even having been an MP for 30 years? Well, there's years? two aspects of it. One is um, restoring it, uh, making sure that the place doesn't fall down. Um, bits have fallen off the outside of uh, the building. I, I have to say, since I took on this role, Prior to it, I'd look at the building, I'd go, oh, look at that gargoyle, isn't it lovely? And look at that statue, isn't it amazing? And now I think, I wonder if that gargoyle's firmly attached. And how easy would it be to get that statue to get out of its socket and fall over, you know? So I I look at Parliament in a completely uh, different way now. And I'm seeing things, uh, as I said, that I've never seen before. Um, I don't know. Have you been into the cloisters? Uh, no, not yet. Not yet. Right. I'm hoping to after this with you. Is well, this the one in the article where they maybe signed the death warrant for Charles? The yeah. Well, apparently, apparently. There, there is that story. I don't know. I'm, I'm not that old. And uh, <laughs> uh, and also, it's where King Henry VIII walked around. As you know, it is a royal palace after all. That's how it started yeah. its life. And so you can actually walk around those cloisters. And I just get the sense of history whenever I do. And to get out into the courtyard, which looks as if you've stepped back several hundred years. It's like medieval. 
is wonderful. So frozen in time almost. Yeah, yeah, it is, uh, and it's uh, that's going to be relatively easy to restore that, and absolutely needs to. Don't forget, it's a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Um, we've made the decision that we want our Parliament to be at Westminster. It's unthinkable for us to do uh, an Australia and go and move to another place um, because it's such an iconic building. And so once you've made that decision, everything else follows from it. We've got to make sure that the place is safe. Uh, and so that's part of the restoration. We're spending roughly $1.7 million a week uh, on the maintenance of the building alone. Uh, and then you've got to make the decision, which is going to be made um, next year after the general election by a new parliament as to what level of output they want, uh, over what period of time and how much money they want to spend. These are kind of the three the three options, which is... Yeah, one um, will be um, a sort of a full decamp for both houses. The other one is a decamp for the House of Lords and the Commons wanders around somewhere over the building. And the third one is they decide not to do the first or the second option and we just have to do an enhanced maintenance programme. Uh, which will be a rolling program, uh, which will carry on forever, I guess. Right. Uh, certainly well after my days. Uh, you're, you're not going to get any of the uh, sort of real enhancements, um, uh, with the third option. Uh, but as I say, um, we've got to keep, keep this building safe. We've just got to make sure, because as you said, three and a bit thousand people are working here. Mm. And all those levels of services, and there are three gift shops, uh, James, not two. Sorry. Uh, and um, yeah, you, you build up a knowledge base of uh, of, of um, silly facts uh, by doing this uh, job that I'm doing. Um, uh, and we just got to make sure that the place doesn't burn down because it's got a bit of a history uh, there. Yeah. Um, the last major of anything to uh, the palace uh, was after the war when the chamber was completely destroyed. Um, uh, and so that's been remodeled completely. Uh, but that is the major, the last major uh, works that has ever been done. Otherwise, it's just been a rolling program of mishmash, adding uh, sort of electricity after the gas, after the steam. Uh, you know, there's all sorts there uh, that need to be properly looked at. And the renovation program on uh, option one and two is going to take about 10 years. And as I said, on three, it's going to be uh, how long's a piece of string? Because you're just going to be going right. Let's let's replace the uh, oil, let's replace the gas, let's replace the steam, and all yeah. that sort of stuff. And so, with your <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> clear my throat. Um, with your role specifically, so you're kind of overseeing this, but could you just tell us a bit about your specific role in that as the, as the chair? Yeah, there's about 20, 20 or so people on the board, and uh, we've looked at thirty six options. And uh, we've brought them down to the two plus one, the two uh, options of um, decant and semi-decant. And then the third one, which is we're not going to do either of those. <clears throat> but we know we've got to carry on doing something. We're, doing nothing is not an option. And so we will then maintain the building. Uh, and so my role was to chair that, uh, that board that has done that. Our recommendations now go to the commissions of both the Commons and the Lords, chaired by the Speaker and Lord Speaker, and that's called the Client Board. And they will make the uh, final decisions as to whether our options are okay. If they're happy with that, it will then go to uh, Parliament in 2025 for the final decision. So uh, it's going to be an interesting um, an interesting time. And would that be interesting, Nigel, like a free vote? Is that kind of like... Oh, a, yes, absolutely. Is an agreement made for all parties yep. that, that that final decision is a free vote? Yeah, um, um, and my job is to make sure that you and other parliamentarians get as much information as you possibly can 
in order for you to make an informed decision. So, you know, if, if, if you're worried about the costs and you think it's too much in, a, in, a, in, in these particular times, you'll make one decision if you think, well, actually, I want to see the enhancements because this isn't just for the people who um, uh, work in this building. If you think about how many visitors we get here every day, you're only going to look up to the public gallery to see it packed. It's the same in the Lords. And then people come and lobby their uh, MPs and all that sort of stuff. So it is, um, it's a working palace that is enjoyed by, in a year, well over a million people. It's interesting you say that because I think, for, by the way, for listeners, when I say free vote, what I mean is that the political parties will not instruct, the leadership of those political parties will not instruct their members how to vote. Members have a total free choice about how they want to vote, which is normal as well with conscience-related issues. So for listeners, if there was something on abortion or even uh, assisted suicide, as it's phrased by others, or assisted dying, then people would, uh, that's always deemed a free vote. So that just for people listening. It's fair to say, Nigel, that it's had a lot of attention, the idea of restoration and renewal. In the media, it seems quite contentious because the way it's framed is Parliament wants to spend X amount of billions on itself. MPs already have a cushy lifestyle. This is just trying to make MPs more comfortable. But as you've been saying, and as James introduced, this isn't just a place for MPs. There's 3,000 employees. It's somewhere where anyone from around the world can come visit when it's open. This is where schools up and down the country come to actually understand the heart of their democracy, where MPs can be lobbied and engaged uh, and obviously raise the profile of many local good causes. Do you think the framing has been at times unfair as about what this project is actually about? Because as you've been mentioning heavily, it's about the health and safety and about the making sure this building lasts, you know, God knows what disasters that could happen. Future generations. Yeah, it's not just unfair, it's wrong. You know, it's just incorrect for people to think that it's just there for the 650 MPs and 800 plus uh, peers. Uh, there are just so many more people that visit, as you say, the schools. Uh, that I even get them coming down from the Ribble Valley, which is well over a four-hour journey for them to make. So you get these kids getting up at six in the morning to catch the first train and then they tour around Parliament as much as they can. Uh, and uh, then they're on the sort of last train home. So, um, you know, and they come from all over the United Kingdom. And the other aspect, uh, which I think is really good to point out as well, is that um, in the restoration of Parliament, we're looking for skills. So there's going to be a huge amount of apprenticeships that is going to be created because of what we're doing. Uh, and we want to ensure that the materials that are used are going to be from all over the United Kingdom as well, from just not just for the four component parts of the UK, but uh, from you know all sorts of uh, um, uh, counties uh, throughout the whole of the United Kingdom. So it's going to be a rich opportunity for us to uh, ensure that this building that I've enjoyed for the last 31 years working here um, uh, is going to be enjoyed by millions and billions of people for um, centuries to come. I mean, I always enjoy walking um, uh, away from Parliament uh, past the Churchill statue. You see queues of people outside red telephone boxes. Yeah. They come, they've come from abroad, right? And there's a queue. I, you won't believe it. There's a queue outside the telephone box. Why? Because they want the red telephone box in there with Big Ben behind it. And if they can get a double-decker bus and a black taxi in it, they, it's Big ching. Man. I know. It's a, literally, it's the most iconic um, uh, picture that you can possibly get. Uh, it's not just New Year's Eve when people, the eyes of uh, uh, Britain and the world are on uh, Big Ben as we chime in the new year. Um, it is um, the size of 16 football pitches, uh, and it has been the seat of British democracy for centuries. 
And it's that what we want, we're about ensuring is going to be there for centuries to come. I love that passion because I actually remember yourself when I came in as a newly elected MP and you were addressing us to sort of help us understand because you've obviously sat in the chair before um, previously and able to therefore guide MPs through process and procedure, uh, which is obviously really important as part of our uh, introduction program, which run by the Whips Office for the Conservative Party. I'm sure Labour have a copy and paste system for their MPs as well about how important this building is. I remember you saying, don't allow this building to just become numb to you. Don't allow it just to become some workplace. Appreciate where you are and understand, therefore, the importance of where you are. Don't just walk into that chamber and think, oh, I won't take time to look around and understand the grandeur, but also the opportunity with all those TV cameras on a channel that's streaming everything that's said in there, with Hansard writing every word, with the lobby above looking down, as well as the visitors. The impact you can have for your constituents. Do you think? Do you think most MPs do get just how important this building is, and that's why, therefore, maybe that fight over the idea of not wanting to decant, as many MPs are probably the most vocal MPs have, I suppose, been the ones who have anti-moving away from Westminster. Do you think it's because most MPs do understand the importance of this building and the and what it represents? Isn't there? Is there? <clears throat> I've always sensed a bit of a fear when it's come up that if people leave. Will they be able to come back? And, yeah, I can, it's always been that. Yeah. No, there's been that, and I've got no doubt that um, uh, that should we have to decant, we will be coming back. Uh, mm. We will definitely be coming back, and it is for all the reasons that you have um, just said. Um, I've also um, been very, very strict uh, on any temporary decant that we do in the Commons. That there are two. Um, voting lobbies either side so that we can physically carry on voting. I know it sounds prehistoric in 2024 to say, well, we can vote on our phones. And of course, during COVID, uh, people were doing just that. So why don't you just do that? And I always tell people the unintended consequences of doing that will be that MPs at voting time don't mix in lobbies, don't chat to one another. uh, And you can't actually put a, a value on that. Mm. If, if, if you're in the lobbies with the Secretary of State for Health exactly. and they're trying to close your hospital, you can pin the Secretary of State for Health against the wall. They haven't got their civil servants around them and you can say, what are you doing? Uh, and so if you are all, all of a sudden uh, doing that on your mobile phones, then you're missing that opportunity to uh, chat with Secretaries of State, with the Prime Minister when the PM comes through. Uh, and actually other colleagues as well. The collegiate even that, element, yeah. the even collegiate that. Otherwise, you're going to relegate everything to conspiracies on WhatsApp groups. And uh, as we know, that's not really beneficial <laughs> to the health of politics. I, I've seen it when you, um, uh, as a guest, when you sometimes sit and wait for someone while they're going to vote and you're sat at the back of the house. And what I think it, people, one of the things that has come up on the pod a little bit, what people don't see is how much, how much people get on cross-party. So what you'll see out there is you'll stand with Jonathan or someone or Pretty, and you'll see a Labour person who they've maybe known for years, maybe like you, they've been a, they've been MP, and so they've got built relationships through different issues they both care about, and they'll stop and have a chat. And that's, I think, it's a part of Parliament that don't that people oh, don't see. Let's be fair, uh, politics is an odd job, mm. uh, uh, probably for odd people as well. Yeah. I, myself <laughs> definitely. <included. laughs> Um, and uh, one of the unintended consequences, for instance, of going to family-friendly hours on a Tuesday, Wednesday, and a Thursday 
is that uh, people are not uh, going to dinners with one another. And I know that sounds really obviously banging on about dinners for. Well, when you're in the um, in one of the restaurants here and you're sitting, the, the, the way we do it is you actually just join a table. Mm, people yeah. may be halfway through their meals, but you just carry on chatting with people that you really don't know too much about. And that's people on your own side, never mind yeah. uh, uh, somebody from another political party. And you get to know them and you, a knowledge base builds up and then the, 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 all of that's gone now. Uh, there's only one day, which is a Monday, when we sit till 10 and we very rarely go beyond 10. Uh, and so the unintended consequence of that is that, as I say, things have been shunted onto WhatsApp groups. So people um, chat now on these groups rather than actually sitting down and having a chat at 7, 30, 8, 9 o'clock mm. uh, and talking about what makes us tick, the passion of politics, what we want to achieve at the end of our days here at Westminster to leave the country in a way better place. And so, you know, you, you, we just got to be very careful that in the restoration and renewal process of this place, we don't junk some of the things that are actually incredibly valuable. But on first sight, you wouldn't really think so. Mm. Oh, sorry, I was about to say, I totally agree, because I think with the 2019 intake in particular, because of COVID and therefore having to move away, a lot of those early days where you would have maybe mixed more, and particularly with even my own party, how few colleagues I got to know who weren't pre-2019. Yeah. and therefore kind of views of cemented of what people think of different groups. And I know it sounds ridiculous to the listeners, but people go, oh, that intake's rebellious or loud-mouthed or that one's dinosaurs. And, that's, and it's bad. I also didn't get a chance to mix with opposition MPs. So yeah. I've only found out through Westminster Hall debates that I've gone into yeah. or by accident when MPs have kind of sent me emails about campaigns. Like, oh, that person has the same interest I do. And actually that lost ability to connect. But Jonathan, let me ask you. So people have said that about 19... Do you think it is more rebellious because it, because perhaps that group, the 109ers as they're called, that intake, spent less time because of COVID, not their own fault, kind of integrating into the, into the Conservative Parliamentary Party? Because we, we lived through, didn't spend lived time through here, it didn't spend time in, yeah. in Parliament. No, exactly. And that's the thing. Well, I didn't have WhatsApp when uh, I got, Did uh, you not? <laughs> I, I, we barely had mobile phones, never mind a WhatsApp, and the computer took you know, like four fifths of the desk. So yeah, technology, Technology can impinge uh, mm. on. It doesn't make it easier. It just impinges uh, on what you're you're doing. And so when I talk to Americans and other people about how we vote, you know, they look at me as if I'm from another planet. Really, and they don't realize and appreciate why we do what we do and mm. why I want to make sure that that is preserved in any temporary decant that we do. I also think it is important because. How an MP decides to vote is quite emotional at times. You may be taking a decision yeah. that's difficult. You may be swallowing your pride on something because you've got something idea down the line. You may be rebelling, which is, again, a big decision. You might be going against your own party. You may be one of a handful of people going into a lobby with your political opponents. I think if you do that to phone, it desensitizes that whole process further. And actually, will it make MPs pause and think, therefore, about how they're going to vote? Because the argument could be that, one, it's easy for the whips. They just say, Click, open your phone and press I or press no. And it means people don't really then mentally check yeah. in what they're voting on. Yeah. But secondly, it also means that rebellions probably would be easier. And whether that's good or bad, I appreciate people can debate that. But people, again, might just, again, vote on their instinct rather than having actually sat in a debate, yeah. listen to the arguments portrayed by all sides uh, of the argument, being around the building, so actually engaging with colleagues to hear why someone might disagree with their view. That would be, I suppose, another 
Yeah, so, I think that sort of the building makes us as well, doesn't it? It uh, in the way that it is constructed, uh, um, the history of it. Uh, um, we, you know, we are replacing a lot of the uh, tiles uh, and uh, selling off the ones that uh, we are Stoke on Trent tiles. Absolutely, and so we're selling them off. But you know, you can buy them in the gift shop. We once gave the President Tsai of Taiwan one of these tiles, really, because she studied at the LSE here in London, and we thought. What do you give a lady who's got absolutely everything? And I thought, a piece of British democracy history. And that's mm. what we did. And she was overblown by this tile. Uh, and you think, wow, Churchill, Gladstone, uh, Disraeli could have stepped on these tiles. You mm. know, it's just fantastic. I'll buy, I, I need to buy you one, James. That's what I, I would love one. It does sound amazing. The, on, you mentioned you know, when people speak to you from different parliaments, you've been around in the committee involved has been around and looked at how they've restored other parliaments. Yeah, we've, we've been to Canada and Canada is a huge case in point. They've um, decanted both chambers um, and uh, uh, so and it, it works the way that they've done it. I have to say you would never know if you were looking at the uh, House of uh, Commons uh, in Canada that it was that it hadn't always been that way. Mm. And the funny thing with them is uh, because they've got a growing population, uh, they were telling me that whilst at the moment they've got individual seats, that they're looking to go bench style uh, so that, uh, you know, oh, so that more, more like what we've done. We do it on a practical basis because we've got 650 MPs. You can only get 450 comfortably sitting on those benches and the others have to sit on the steps or stand. And that only happens in big uh, ticket occasions like uh, Prime Minister's questions and the budget and stuff like that. So, you know, huge things. Normally, as, you know, last night you get... Uh, a second reading of a bill, and you've got 25 people in there. Uh, and so the benches work perfectly for us. And it's interesting that they looked at us. It's also interesting, actually, when you go around the Commonwealth, how many of their parliaments replicate uh, the United Kingdoms, of course. I bet you don't know this, Jonathan. Six of them, they date from the 13th century. There are That's some statues of barons in the, uh, in the House of Lords, which are black, and I'm not too sure they ever started as black. And they'd, they're going to have to do some research on how to clean them because they've never they been cleaned. Yeah. And, and on the kind of buildings, I assume places like Buckingham Palace have some some similar issues. Yeah, it's much smaller, but I've, I've, I've crawled around Buckingham Palace twice and that is uh, fantastic what they've been able to do there and uh, give uh, His Majesty his due. He's basically, he's shifted around the palace Right. But the work has carried on there. But it's been, um, as I say, it's much, much smaller. I've been up to Manchester Town Hall as well. Yeah. And for those uh, of your listeners who watch um, period pieces of uh, politics and you think, oh, wow, look at that scene in the House of Commons. Well, it's probably Manchester Town Is Hall. Is that where they do it? Yeah. So there was one, yeah. what was the um, the scandal? Hugh Grant played Jeremy Thorpe. Yeah. The, is it may a well have scandal? Been. May well have been Manchester and Town it Hall. It kind of looks like Parliament, but you know it's not like Parliament if you've yeah. been there. That, that look. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I've been up there and it's, uh, uh, it is spectacular. Some of it actually, you know, it, it is exactly like the House of Commons and some of it wow. is actually more decorative than the House of Commons. So, uh, but once, uh, once work starts, um, I mean, what they're fearing, I think as well, is that once you start cutting a wire in the House of Lords, the lights go off in the House of Commons and stuff <laughs> like that. So, um, so they, they I, 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 I know that those who are professionals think that staying in, the Commons, whilst this restoration work gets done, if it's the major one, uh, is just unfathomable. So uh, we're looking at various options as to where we would go. And uh, of course, one of them um, is uh, for the Commons would be uh, on this estate here, 
uh, at the rear of uh, Richmond House. So, um, uh, so that's that's one option that we're looking at, and then we're looking at various other options for the House of Lords. But uh, it's all going to be sort of within this distance within uh, Whitehall. It's not going to be. If you remember, there was speculation that they go to York. Uh, yes. Well, they, York is brilliant. All right. Let's go. Let's let's make that absolutely clear. But it does seem sensible if everybody. Well, I, I must say, place. Nigel, I did write a piece on Conservative Home with Councillor Abby Brown pitching for the Lords to come to Stoke on Trent if they're going to really level level up. How did the, how did their well their, some of their lordships honest. did actually sort of push back? But Michael Gove has given his backing and thinks it's a great idea. So as a shameless pitch to you here on the pod, Stoke-on-Trent is ready <laughs> to become the home of the House of Lords. Where better than, you know, a post-industrial city, an hour and a half on the train to London so their lordships can still easily commute on a daily basis <laughs> and we can really invest and level up. That's why I'm, I'm going well, to keep pushing. Good luck with selling that one, Dylan. <laughs> uh, I am going to push that. So even even if I'm no longer here after the next election, I'll be <laughs> lobbying away to make sure Stoke on Trent. I don't give you great odds on that, but keep it try. Uh, so, can I just say one other thing as well for uh, those who um, are interested in uh, the restoration of Parliament? If it, we've got this Act, right, which means that it should all be done together. That's just the, the Parliament that everybody knows and loves, rather than some of the outer buildings like Norman Shaw North, which is undercover at the moment. That's a three hundred million pound. Uh, 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 renovation that's going on, and then we'll do the building next to it. Of course, it's the old Scotland Yard for those who uh, know their mm -hmm. history. So those buildings are really good and really uh, useful. But the one that we've already done, of course, was Big Ben. Yes. Yeah. And the the estimate came in for that around about twenty seven million, uh, and in the end it cost eighty five million. And I can remember being asked by John Humphreys on the Today program what my thought was, and I said I was horrified. This was many years ago. Horrified that uh, the costs got out of control uh, like they did and you know questions need to be answered and all that and now i'm chair of the program board and i look at everything that i see and i know how much everything costs i think 85 million how did you manage to do it yeah. for that because uh, i don't know if you've been up it yet because the tours have already started going no, up yeah, to big ben uh, it is absolutely spectacular what they've done uh there they've brought the colors back on the clock face uh, it's now safe as well, so it's not going to fall over, which was the other fear. Uh, but uh, you get up there, you see the uh, the bells, you see the mechanism that makes it chime, uh, and it's just glorious. So uh, I do recommend um, uh, any of your listeners that uh, they should uh, go online and look to get booked on one of those tours. And they tours. can do, right? Yeah. You can go to do that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's tours going up there all the time. It just, I, it's one of those, it's hard to walk past Big Ben. Yeah. Even if you, I, I remember when I got my job on Vote Leave and we were based uh, across the Lambeth Bridge, and very not far away. Yeah, I know it. And so every day I would walk out of Westminster Station and walk around. Yeah. So I walked past it every day for eight well, months and you just, it's even a, then you can't not look look at it. It's spectacular. It really is spectacular. And and the other on the other side of the building is the Victoria Tower. Mm. That is the one with the massive uh, Union flag uh, on it. And I've stood on the top of that, so I had a really good look down uh, at the rest of the parliamentary estate, and I can see, therefore, the complications in what we are about to embark on. Uh, and um, something fell off it um, just over a year ago, so we've got a curtain around it now, so that if anything falls now, nobody's going to get killed. That's why that curtain is there. That's why it's there. Uh, and later this year, the scaffolding goes up around the Victoria Tower, and it's going to be renovated the outside of it. That's going to be quite an expensive project. Can you imagine how much scaffolding? In fact, when I retire from uh, politics, I'm going into scaffolding. Uh, <laughs> it's going to yeah. be a colossal amount of scaffolding yeah. going around there. 
what that building at the moment contains is acts dating back centuries. And I've actually been up there to have a tour, uh, and uh, they got out um, uh, an act that King Henry uh, VIII had signed. I mean, they're there, but they're now bit by bit being transported away from uh, the tower uh, to Q archives, where they will be way better safe um, you know, in air-conditioned uh, rooms Are and chambers. Are they going to stay there permanently? I understand that that is the case because then the Lords will decide what they want to do with uh, the Victoria Tower, which is several floors, and uh, accommodation for peers is a headache, mm, yeah. uh, an absolute continuous headache, and it may well be that they start to use uh, th that because space. Because peers don't get the same kind of accommodation as, for example, members or of parliament staff. Oh, no, no. or staff. So people always forget that, like peers, the best are sharing five, six to an office. Yeah, easy. Um, mm. And it is like, it is, and obviously don't have... They don't have the staff don't have they the don't staff have budget the, uh, the, the budget. They just have uh, daily expenses. So, so all of that uh, is going to come on stream and the work on that will start next year. So if you're in London, have a good look at Victoria Tower because you ain't going to see it for about four years afterwards whilst they, uh, they do the... Uh, essential uh, work uh, to ensure that, uh, and it's dotted with gargoyles. I mean, it literally is. You wouldn't mm. believe the detail, which you don't really get to see when you're um, down below and you're looking up at this amazing uh, tower. But it, there's a lot of stuff that could fall off. So it needs to be properly. Tell you what, I'm sitting here going, I really need to yeah. make an effort to do these, like, do the tours. I, I, think, I've, I know that MP's been offered for the restoration renewal to go down, to go able to look at the pipework and be shown literally the harsh reality of what the estate is like and where the mm. major health and safety dangers are around the electrics, fire, obviously plumbing as well. And bizarrely, I've not yet taken opportunity, but after this, I'm like, I need to do it because when else would I get that chance to to see the things that you could see? Yeah. And, and One quick question on the, so um, obviously it will be up to MPs to decide what happens, but in the instance where um, they relocated, how would you recreate the chamber? It, how, how would that, would it, would it look anything like the current shape? Would there be a kind of mock-up or? Um, well, we've not got that far, James. Got that far. <laughs> uh, but uh, as I said, I've insisted on the, uh, the the lobby voting lobbies being either side. Right. Uh, but no, it's not going to be a horseshoe. It's not going to be any major change to the way that we we do it. Okay. And there so will be a chair at the you know where the speaker sits uh, and the deputies right at the the very back. So. Uh, the general idea will be do do what Canada has done, and it, you would generally look at it, and it would be what it is. I mean, if Granada TV can uh, recreate one, I'm sure we can. Exactly, yeah. Because there is that one that they always use on TV, yeah. which I think there's only like two of them or something. There. Well, they, yeah, they do because they move from Key Street in Manchester to where they currently are in Salford, and so they've had to. Uh, uh, well, I don't know whether they've recreated it again, but certainly the one that was there is gone. Mm. And. When, since you've had this job, obviously all MPs know you're involved in this. What's the most common thing that they ask you or you feel they're concerned about? Um, well, I think some MPs think we've already started because there's so much uh, maintenance yes. going on on a continuing basis. So they, a lot of them think we've started. And I just. And that's not true. So all the true. work you see, anyone who's been on the estate, there's a lot of work that goes on around the parliamentary yep. estate. That's not this process. Nope. It's, it's the 1.7 million uh, a week uh, on the maintenance of the uh, of the building, um, uh, and then you. The, the biggest question is when w when is it going to start? Mm. So they either think they started or they want to know when. And mm. I, my own view is, uh, if they make the decision in uh, 2025 as to uh, option one or two, then I think you're going to start to see things in 2029, 2030. 
So okay, another kind of few years after that. Yeah. So there, so there is a time pressure because as this goes on, I assume the kind of wind and maintenance issues just grow. Well, they've got uh, leaks in the House of Lords through the, uh, and I'm not talking of political, <laughs> political leaks here. I was going to say, there's no, leaks there's across, water. The, across the house. <laughs> there's water <laughs> coming in. And we've had problems in the uh, chamber yeah. where we had to suspend uh, once because uh, something fell uh, from the, in uh, the ceiling in the chamber. Yeah, yeah, it was a bit of wood, but uh, nonetheless, panic uh, set in straight away. Mm. And the other thing as well, because people don't know, is how much asbestos is around the building as yeah, well. So uh, there's a great fear that once they start, you'll go, oh, my goodness me asbestos and also there's uh, yeah and i mean i i remember that one with the chamber um and sort of wondering and i suppose i fell into the trap of assuming that work had already started as well with the estate when we so got you, here you you thought as well this was all i thought work was underway and we were voting on basically like i remember it being sold to me as oh we're basically voting to either move out never come back or stay and fight for our right to retain well, we, this as our part we've our... been debating this for over mm, 15 years i know i would say and of course, it um, we stalled the process because the costs were coming in as astronomic figures, and so we've now brought it in house uh, with a delivery authority, but uh, and with the estates management team as well, uh, and the decisions, as I said, being uh, taken by the program board and the uh, client board as well, uh, and it's it's going well at the moment, and we've got the client board meeting uh, in beginning of February. Then uh, we will be meeting as the program board shortly afterwards, and whatever they instruct us to look at again in more detail, or they're happy, and then we can just uh, uh, plow on. But um, in the first instance, um, it is for those initial decisions to be made uh, this year. So it's nothing critical this year, just you want way more information. And so then the delivery authority and the estates team can uh, drill down on those costs and the implications as to the length of time and the outputs that are going to be there. And then the parliament that comes in in 2025 will make the real decision as to what's going to happen. And on that, when you say parliament's going to make the decision, does it require an act or is this just a vote in the House to decide? It'll be a vote in the House. It's, so it's, it's, you don't require an act for this, it's just allowing We've got the, act. the members to make the we've decision. We've got the act, it's called the, uh, the Restoration and Renewal Act and it's there. So we've got that uh, as a guidance. That's all done. Yeah, but of course you can amend an act and you can um, uh, scrap an act. So. But that will be for a future parliament in 2025 when they see, um, you know, what the implications are. But the final thing, James, is that doing nothing is not an option. So even voting down the two options means that then we're going to plow on uh, doing uh, the, uh, the, the, the essential uh, work that needs to be done within parliament. So that third option is essentially the default. If, if they don't decide to do one of the two main... Yeah. The third one kind of has to happen. But it, but yeah, it does, uh, but none of them are easy options. Yeah. Right. So anybody who thinks, oh, option one and two, well, if we just don't vote for those, we can have the third option. Um, you're not going to get the outcomes as much as you would on option one or two. And anybody who thinks it's going to cost less, no, it won't. It'll cost more, but it'll be over a longer period of time. And um, I'll ask you, or you might feel that you would, you don't want to retain neutrality. I'm not sure, Nigel. But do you have, do you personally have a view on what should happen? Absolutely not. And it's not that I'm trying to hide my view. No. It is, I can see the benefits uh, and de-benefits in each of the uh, two major options that are there, plus the default. Uh, my job is to make sure that people like Jonathan get as much information as they possibly can, uh, and then they will make the final decision and whatever parliament decides, I'll get on with it. And quick question to you, Jonathan. 
as as Nigel said, they're going to try and give you as much information yeah. as you can. If you're here off the next election and yeah. you can vote in that, yeah, you know, I have heard this fear that you people won't be able to get back into Parliament. Is that one of you? Do you know how you would vote? And are there? I've got. I don't want to be unfair, but are there personal? Are you kind of thinking to yourself, "I love being an MP. I love working in this building. I'm scared about leaving because that's one of the senses I get." Yeah, look, I am definitely scared about leaving and never coming back. Look, I fell in love with politics because my parents talked about it loads. It was shown to me on the TV, and it was always of the House of Commons chamber. I love my history. I used to watch all the old YouTube videos of the 60s, 70s and 80s and then like listening to the debates or watching them when the TV cameras were installed yeah. and hearing and knowing the history. And I make a point of going in the chamber once a day before we sit, just sit on the green bench and look around and think, this is where Churchill sat. This is where Blair stood when he was talk to, uh, talking about the Iraq war, you know, when I was 11 years old or talking about, go back in the days when you think about Clement Attlee coming into government, you know, I think I literally do like to consider I'm walking some very, in some very big footsteps. This is where Jonathan Gullis talked about chai lattes. This is yeah, this what is future like, generations well, are yeah, I, well. I did the same, but of course, um, it started by listening to the voice of George Thomas mm. uh, on the radio because uh, the House of Commons refused to be televised. Yeah. Yeah. And it was the Lords that got televised first. I didn't know that. I and knew. The, yeah, okay. and then the Commons went, hold on, they are, they're stealing all the attention. Yeah, exactly. So uh, And so they decided uh, that they would be uh, televised as well. And of course, nobody's looked back since. So, then. which is why, like, if I was, if there were a vote today on this very issue, and a sort of a favour position I have would be the members of Parliament to remain, but decant the House of Lords, and then do the work that way. And as I say, then also selfishly say, let's put the Lords in Stoke. And also, um, you know, the building um, is historic, as we've said, and just in the you know periods of time. Uh, that I've been around, you know, I've seen the Queen and uh, the Duke of Edinburgh make addresses from Westminster Hall, the Pope, Barack Obama, uh, and Sang Suu Kyi. Mm. Um, and uh, then you uh, have got the big um, events that have taken place yes. whilst I've been an MP, which is, to begin with, the Maastricht Treaty and uh, the vote of yes. no confidence uh, in John Major uh, that took place, uh, which he created in essence to ensure that Maastricht got through. And then fast forward 30 years, maybe a bit less than that, of course, uh, then you get Brexit and the amazing scenes in Parliament during that period, which you would have watched. Mm, you would have watched it on TV then, I'd Jonathan. Have been, I'd have been. Uh, but then you were part of the 2019 intake, uh, which made the argument, let's get Brexit done. So all of that took place in the theatre of what is the Chamber of the House of Commons and replicated in the Chamber of the House of Lords. and. Uh, um, and to think that we somehow are going to go to some sort of sanitized um, IKEA style, uh, although IKEA furniture, I have to hasten to add, is uh, wonderful, I'm sure. Uh, but IKEA style chambers, where it's where it's literally um, you could do operations because it's so clean and love, you know, pristine. Mm -hmm. Then no, our democracy is built up over centuries yeah. in the way that we do things and the traditions that we have. The fact that we don't shake hands as MPs. Uh, the fact that when you come into the chamber, you nod towards where the chair is because that's where the altar was because, you know, you're going back centuries again to uh, St. Stephen's as where the uh, the original chamber of uh, parliament is. And people who come and visit on tours can actually see the studs in the ground as to where the uh, original table was and where the original speaker's chair was. Uh, so you've got all of that. And then you've got the undercroft which is a glorious, glittering uh, Stunning, yeah. a church mm, where MPs can get married and have their kids baptised. 
And for I me, I had both mine baptized. There, there we are. I had both mine baptized. But for me, that well, that would be memorable for you. But the most memorable thing for me was the church service that we had for Margaret Thatcher when her coffin came into Parliament, the first woman prime minister ever of our country. And uh, I still uh, get sort of goosebumps on my back when I think that the speaker's chaplain actually spent the night in vigil uh, over the coffin before it was then put uh, into a hearse originally uh, up to uh, the church on the Strand and then transferred onto a gun carriage to St. Paul's for the funeral. And all of that, you know, that process started uh, in St. Mary's. You're right. I mean, probably the most memorable moment for me was Her Late Majesty Queen Elizabeth II and having the opportunity on behalf of my constituents to come pay my respects and to walk through Westminster Hall and that silence, obviously the soldiers protecting the coffin, the vigil, seeing some of our own parliamentarians who are still reservists or in uniform showing up across the political divide and that morning together as a nation but yeah. I, yeah, I I can't I, I can't even describe it it was something that well, I was on TV ever, 24 hours a day it was on TV 24 TV hours a day. I didn't think, watch it at home and say oh look there's somebody coming in at 10 o'clock at night I know yeah. and I just don't think and like you know the crowds like the people like fair yeah. play to those people doing 11 12 hours in the queue I think it just blew me away just how respectful and actually I sh- think showed the very best of Britain uh, in regards, and also the very best of Parliament, of yeah. how that building is such a unifying centre, as you say, for our democracy, but also the nation when it comes to those big occasional momentums, and actually reminds us again the monarchy's role within our democracy. But one of my favourite memories of uh, being an MP was uh, when um, we had the laying in state for the Queen Mother, and it was incredibly similar, uh, but it wasn't a ticketed uh, event as such, which we had real issues uh, getting MPs and their staff in, if you recall, yeah. uh, with, the, with Her Majesty the Queen. But uh, on this occasion, uh, we were just able to join um, one of the queues, but from within Parliament. So you didn't have to do what a lot of other people did, which was to um, queue over one bridge uh, away from Parliament, over uh, the other side of the embankment, and to go way past County Hall. And uh, on this one day, I was going to the gym in County Hall, which is uh, where I used to go. And as I came back, I looked at the queue and I saw two elderly ladies standing there. And I said, "Um, I know you'll sound this a bit odd, but I am a member of parliament. Why don't you just come with me, both of you? Come and have a cup of tea and I will take you both in to walk past. Uh, Otherwise, they would have queued. I think that queue from that position would have been at least four to six hours. And they were in their 80s. And so they did come with me. They had a cup of tea. Wow. And just as chance would have it, as we walked into the uh, Great Hall, uh, the um, members of the royal family took over, standing in vigil wow. uh, around the coffin for um, the Queen Mother. And I just thought, wow, they couldn't, they couldn't have had it any better. That's absolutely and it's a great amazing. memory for me to, to take. Is that what's one of your favorite memories? Of yes, it is. Me? No, absolutely. Yeah. I suspect the two ladies are no longer with us now because it was such a long time ago. Uh, but uh, hopefully uh, they, they will have told that story told, time and time again when they got over. They told that story. And uh, Nigel, just to end, I mean, listening to that last 10 minutes or so, the amount of facts you've got and the picture you paint of Parliament is amazing. And I was curious, what's the kind of favourite thing through, whether it's your 30 years or through the, through your role in restoration, your favourite kind of fact? There's, there's so many things. I love going around this place with any of you MPs yeah. because... Uh, you'll just be talking about something or other, and someone will say, "Oh, do you know that room? That's that's where such and such happened." 
I wonder what well, your favourite There's just loads of them because, of course, Room 14 for uh, the leadership elections. Yeah. Uh, we've had lots of stories on, on that one. And, of course, I was secretary to the 1922, so I spent a yeah. lot of time there. But the, the quirkiest mm. and, and, for me, funny memories uh, was um, when Barack Obama came. Uh, and so he stood and gave his speech. And uh, when he came off, I shook his hand and I said, uh, I, I was listening to your um, speech to the press corps. I said it was one of the funniest speeches I've ever heard. And it is the one where, if you recall, there was a lot of controversy as to whether he was yeah. born American, which you have to be, or where you were born somewhere else. And they put, the, uh, they put a, um, a comic um, clip in of uh, The Lion King yes, they in did. and all that. So it was his hilariously, video he called it, didn't it's it? hilariously yeah. funny. With uh, Barack Obama came uh, an entourage of other people, one of which was Tom Hanks. And so we were asked, would we show uh, some of them around? And I was um, deputy speaker then, so uh, we took him into the chamber. Uh, and I was sitting in the speaker's chair just having a chat with him because clearly we weren't in session. And he was telling us about how the, you know he and his wife were watching some, um, uh, I think it was uh, the funeral of uh, Diana and, you know, and, all, and, and weddings and all that sort of stuff because they love all of that. And then all of a sudden, an MP came just wandering in called Brian Binley, sadly no longer with us, but he's my old flatmate and I love Brian to death. And he said, um, I said, hello, Brian. I said, uh, do you want a photograph uh, done? And he just looked at Tom Hanks and he said, well, if this gentleman wants a photograph done with me, I'm more than happy to. <laughs> <laughs> to this day, I swear, you know, I, well, we were all. That's amazing. Burst out laughing. Right, do you know who this man is? <laughs> Did Tom find it funny? Did Tom oh, Hanks yeah, yeah, of course. Uh, Tom Hanks. Oh, that's brilliant. Tom, that's Tom Hanks a is a lovely, story. lovely man. But uh, uh, I, I think he could see the humour that uh, Brian Binley was the only person on our earth who just didn't know who Tom Hanks was. That's amazing. <laughs> and just very quickly for me, obviously your role as Deputy Speaker, you were elected as a Conservative Member of Parliament. You became, you've been Deputy Speaker, come back as Deputy Speaker. How do you interact with your constituents, lobby the government, and act in Parliament? Because obviously you're not sat on the benches like no. myself making speeches, you're sat in the Speaker's chair overseeing the proceedings of Parliament. How does your role, that, just for listeners, like differ? What's the expectation in terms of how you write correspondence? Are you able to be quite open or is there a certain line you have to take similar to what like, the Speaker might have to? I once got a, a letter from a constituent that said, Mr. Evans, uh, I've always thought you useless. Uh, but I now find as Deputy Speaker, you can't vote uh, or you can't ask questions in the chamber. So now I know you're useless. And uh, <laughs> we sort of laughed at that because uh, me and Lindsay Hoyle and the other two deputies are exactly the same, Lindsay being the Speaker. Lindsay's constituency is next to mine and we actually share some common problems, one of which was trying to get the accident and emergency unit of uh, Chorley Hospital reopen. Uh, and so me and uh, Lindsay worked together and the Secretaries of State come and visit us. And I remember sitting with Lindsay as uh, Matt Hancock came in, and uh, and let's just say Lindsay and I lobbied hard, and <laughs> the A and E reopened, and then the cybersecurity force, um, which is uh, um, we knew it was going to come to uh, the north of England, but we didn't know quite where, and we knew there was a lot of pressure for it to go to Manchester, and my seat is a bit further north than Manchester, and I think hold on, Manchester gets it's more than its fair share of mm. everything, yet. Areas a bit further north, you talk about levelling up. Well, let's level up a bit further north than uh, Manchester. And Lindsay and I, because his seat is next to mine, we, we lobbied the Prime Minister, the Foreign Secretary, the Defence Secretary, you name it. We were lobbying. We, we lobbied Boris a few times. 
and it's now coming to the Ribble Valley. So you can be effective in the way that you lobby. And it goes back to that time that I was saying, Jonathan, that when you're voting and you've got a Secretary of State walking past you, you're not going to let that opportunity go, are you? You're going to say, oh, excuse me, Secretary of State, and you are really going to have, have a go. So what you do there in that instance when you're voting, Lindsay, I, and the other two deputies do in, our, in the privacy of our own offices. I could imagine, I, I, I could definitely imagine ministers being told, if the Speaker or Deputy Speaker wants to have a meeting, one, you take it as soon as possible, and two, bearing in mind they oversee the procedures of Parliament, probably a good idea to keep <laughs> them on side. <laughs> keep them happy it's good you would have had some advice james if you were special when you were special advising yeah also at the home office you have to meet with the speaker to discuss security issues around the house which obviously yes. is very serious so i remember going to see um, Lindsay with pretty and you know obviously this is the security of mps themselves which is a, an ongoing issue but in the course of those meetings it's a it's a very respectful relationship though because yes. you're talking about the office holder of state and the speaker and the deputy speakers, obviously, these people all hold what they do, you know, very seriously. And so I think they to take it. It's outside of that is the you know people. There's a lot of respect there. I think. Yeah, there's several ways to skin a cat, and that's how the deputies and the speaker do it in in a different way. Yeah. And uh, don't forget as well, uh, Jonathan. Every time a secretary of state passes me while I'm in the chair. I just oh, secretary of state. You know, whilst the, even whilst <laughs> the business is going on, I. I uh, uh, you're able, uh, I said to Grant Shapps when they're looking uh, for a, a headquarters of uh, a new organization uh, dealing with uh, military. Uh, and I just said, uh, uh, you will be expecting a call from me, uh, Secretary of State. <laughs> yeah, he laughed. <laughs> I love that. I suppose it's just, it, yeah, it must, it's interesting, like that challenge, but it's so important. That, and I was wondering, did you, did you aspire for the speaker's chair. I've heard, so obviously colleagues always talk about, oh, one day being a cabinet minister or prime minister. I don't tend to hear many. There's only one I can think of, Will Rag, who's kind of said that he'd actually like, that would actually be an dream. Was it always a dream to go down that role? Or is it something that you find out as you're going through Parliament? Actually, I quite like the idea of being a deputy speaker or speaker. I'm really interested in working cross party, obviously the way the parliament runs interesting perspective not, not, as well. Not, not really, uh, Jonathan, because in the early days, if you think about it, uh, they were appointed by the whips. And it yes. was only in 2010 that uh, John Burko announced that they were going to be elected for the first time. And when that announcement came, it was prior to the 2010 election. So I phoned Lindsay Hoyle up as my neighbour and I said, Lindsay, I'm thinking of standing. If they're going to be elections for the deputy speaker for the first time, I'm thinking of standing. And he said, oh, I hadn't really given that much thought, but I think I will as well. And of course, we both stood. We both got elected in 2010. Uh, but what goes on next is that all I'm interested in doing is fighting the next general election, put my, hand, put my future in the uh, hands of my electorate. Uh, and no, my ambition is not to be Speaker of the House of Commons. Uh, I will be fighting as a Conservative at the next general election. The Speaker will be fighting as the Speaker. Yeah, it's only the Speaker, isn't it, that has that special... He's the only one, and uh, the major political parties won't contest the Speaker, but some of the minor ones will. Uh, and uh, Lindsay will fight it as uh, hard as he would uh, if he was fighting he the, the Tories and it. the Lib Dems. Uh, and uh, then uh, I will support uh, Lindsay in his uh, bid then to be re-elected as Speaker, which happens at the start of each Parliament, and we'll just take it from there. But uh, he's got my 100% support. It's great working with him. We, I think we've got a good team there with uh, Rosie yeah, Winterton, definitely. Eleanor Lang, and uh, we've also got uh, Sir Roger Gale, who is uh, a temporary, uh, who, who's come in to assist uh, one of the other deputies 
um, at, uh, at this uh, time. Uh, and I, I think we work as a great team, you know, and uh, we have meetings every day and we talk about security, as James referred. We talk about urgent questions. We talk about what went on yesterday. We talk about what might happen today and, you know, what's happening outside the parliamentary estate and all that sort of stuff. And if anybody's had any problems, that will get raised as well. Any possible points of order, all of that sort of stuff. And we work as a great team that helps, uh, uh, let's just say, the process of democracy in the building we love continue. Okay, last question. How much does Jonathan's name come up in those meetings <laughs> that you have with the other deputies and the speaker? Well, I think that I would be divulging what would be known as a state secret <laughs> if I was to say that. But I'm sure that your listeners would be nodding wisely if they say <laughs> that I am absolutely certain there have been times when that name has been mentioned. On that bombshell. On that bombshell. <laughs> well, look, thank you so much, guys, for coming on to Inside Whitehall. <laughs> it's been absolutely fascinating. Really appreciate you giving your time. And thanks to everyone again for listening. Please make sure that you give us a review and a rating. Please make sure that you subscribe. However it is that you subscribe to your podcast, press the subscribe button and follow us on X, formerly known as Twitter, at Whitehall Pod UK. Thank you very much. Bye-bye. Thanks so much.